The following is meeting number four of the Southeast Blending Conference held in Jacksonville, Florida on September the 3rd of 2006. The first part of the meeting is a conclusion of message number three, the difference between the Lord's recovery and Christianity. The second part of the meeting will be message number four, the three aspects of the Lord's recovery, part one, the divine revelation in the Bible. And the speaker is Brother Ron Kangas. Fellowship from outline three on the difference between the Lord's recovery and Christianity. This may take about half of the time devoted to the message. Then we'll take a little break and sing a very fitting hymn uh, in our booklet that matches and touches the spirit of the last section of outline three on going outside the camp unto the Lord where he is. And those serving on piano, uh, fear not and do not be anxious. We'll give you adequate lead time uh, to come back to the piano, if you would please. Perhaps some are joining us this morning for the first time in this conference sequence of messages. We'd like to update you in a very simple way. The general subject is knowing the Lord's recovery. And I believe a few hundred of us at least could state the present definition of the Lord's recovery as the Lord's move to bring his people back to the beginning so that through them he might fulfill his original intention. By going back to the beginning, we mean to be brought back to the original, pure revelation of God through the Lord Jesus and through the apostles. We're not trying to reverse the course of history, but we are going back to God's beginning in his revelation and are seeking to live the Christian life and practice the church life uh, in light of that revelation. So many things have been lost, but they are recovered if we have the heart to be brought back to the beginning. To know the Lord's recovery, as we are presenting it this weekend, is to know the recovery intrinsically, inwardly, spiritually, essentially, in a living way. And we are now considering the difference between the Lord's recovery and Christianity. By Christianity, we do not mean the Christians, the persons. And we do not mean the faith that may be called the Christian faith. We use the word Christianity to refer to denote the appearance of the outward, organized, religious system that falls under the umbrella of Christianity. We're not talking about persons. We're not criticizing persons. We're not talking now about the faith 
delivered once for all to all the saints. What we are saying is that according to the Lord's own prophecies in Matthew 13 and Revelation 2 and 3, the church that he established has undergone a drastic change in nature and appearance and has become a vast, complex religious system that is characterized by the clergy laity system, by hierarchy, by incompleteness at best regarding the truth, with the ignorance concerning the experience and growth in the divine life, the lack of entering into the divine dispensing to carry out God's economy. The Lord needs a recovery in order to fulfill his original purpose. He will not abandon his eternal purpose and accommodate himself to the degradation in the religious world. Just as the children of Israel, who were judged severely for their apostasy and idolatry by being taken into Babylon, and returned to Jerusalem through a minority, so the Lord will have a remnant among the Christian believers who will be faithful under his mercy to leave the Babylonian system of religion and return to the original and proper ground of the church. Without such a return, the church cannot be built. If the church cannot be built, the bride cannot be prepared. And if the bride is not prepared, the bridegroom will not come back. For what will he come? For hundreds of millions of baby Christians living in the self, the flesh, and the natural life, living in division, totally unable to reign in life, defeated in this way and that way by the enemy, the Lord will not come back if such is the situation. The bride must make herself ready, and according to the New Testament revelation, the preparation of the bride takes place through the building up of the body of Christ, which takes place in the local churches. In order to have the genuine but not perfect or ideal church life, we need to be brought back to the beginning. There is a vast difference between the Lord's recovery of the church life on the ground of oneness and Christianity as a vast, organized, religious system. We need to see this difference in order to be clear regarding what we are. We need to see this difference in order to protect the Lord's testimony in the churches from any kind of incursion 
from the religious world. Some places, sad to say, want to be big. They want to be mega. They're a little late in this realization. The Calvary chapels and the Jesus People movement pioneered the way in the 1960s. Have rock concerts. Have the young people come. Then at the end, give them a simplistic message. And let the young people get saved. Let them be born into mixture. Born into religious corruption. Some places that supposedly are in the Lord's recovery are pursuing this way. The leaders among those congregations will answer to the Lord concerning their shepherding of the flock. But the vast majority of churches and the saints in the Lord's recovery want to become a pure testimony of Jesus. And we simply want to be what we are. In the years 1972 to 1973, I had a rather unusual experience in my profession as a teacher at the time. I was a, te- I was a teacher at an Orthodox Jewish school for boys, Yeshiva Beth Yehuda in Southfield, Michigan. And I was impressed by a particular matter regarding these Orthodox Jews, the way they dressed, the way they ate, the way they lived. They were altogether unashamed to be Orthodox Jews. If you go to Israel today and see the Hasidic Jews and the ultra-Orthodox on the Sabbath with their long curly locks and their black hats, they know they're different. They know they're different from other Israelis. They're not ashamed. They're not afraid. They're not embarrassed. We are Jews. We are Orthodox Jews. In the same principle, we do not flaunt anything, but we should not be afraid or ashamed to be what we are in Christ. Others are not ashamed to call themselves this or that or this or that. We don't have to hang our heads in shame. We are meeting on the ground of the oneness of the body of Christ to be the genuine local churches. And this weekend, we are all meeting as the church in Jacksonville, Florida. That's not our boast. We're clear what we are. That blessed species of being, although they may not know they're blessed till later in life, known as church kid, somehow they need to see this. To see the difference, to discern the difference. I appreciate the young brother's testimony last night, being a church kid, but for social reasons, you know, going to 
other kind of places with his friends, but inwardly realizing there is no life there. And now he knows where the life is. So let's continue. Outline three, we're under Roman numeral two, point D. What differentiates the Lord's recovery from Christianity is our nature and standing. To know the Lord's recovery is to know the nature of the Lord's recovery. In nature, the Lord's recovery is not religious. Now, you may be religious. That's up to you. If you want to be religious, we'll still love you. We'll fellowship with you. But the nature of the Lord's recovery has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with Christ being our life. And our standing is the oneness of the body of Christ. What is the Lord's recovery? It is the recovery back to the beginning where there was the all-inclusive Christ and the oneness of the body. This is our standing. Christ is our life. Christ is our element. Christ is our constituent. Christ is our nature. Christ is our content. Christ is our life. Christ is our person. Christ is our reality. Christ is our expression. And our standing is the standing of the oneness of the body of Christ. So point one says the church is an entity composed of Christ as its content and nature. This is an intrinsic matter. The church is an entity, and the content and nature of this entity is Christ himself. Outwardly, objectively, in standing, we're all in the Lord's recovery. But to be in the Lord's recovery in reality is to have Christ as our content and nature. So here's an illustration I may come back to tonight when we speak of the God-man life. If Christ is to be our nature, then the cross must touch our natural being. Now, I'm a dad, and I'm a grandpa. And men who are dads love their children. And men who are grandpas love their grandkids. You don't have to be born again to love your children. You don't have to have Christ as your life to love your grandchildren. This is a common human affection. It's natural. But the church is an entity composed of Christ as its nature. So here we are. 
a major sector of our human life has to do with our primary relations. And instead of Christ being the nature of our love, our natural life is the nature of our love. So in this whole matter, we're the same as unbelievers. The same. And some even have an obsessive love for their family members. An obsessive love. And through that obsessive love, Satan controls their being and hinders them from being built up in the church. So such a person can assemble on the Lord's day, say, I'm in the Lord's recovery. But how much is Christ your nature? You're not a little girl. You're not a little boy. You've been here for many years, maybe a few decades. When will Christ become your nature? Living in you to be everything in you. We saying Christ is the one reality of all. Of what is he the reality? Is Christ the reality of your love for your wife? Is Christ the reality of your love for your children? Is Christ the reality of your human virtues? Is Christ the reality of your human life? Ironically, we may sing Christ is the one reality of all, but we may sing it without having much of Christ as the reality. Yes, to meet with the church, to say I'm part of the church in my city, I'm in the Lord's recovery, you are correct. But in your being, in your life, in your nature, you may not be in the Lord's recovery. And you may not know the Lord's recovery at this level. Rather, you live in the Lord's recovery, contrary to the Lord's recovery, by living the church life by your natural life. And to do this at 17 is understandable. To do it at 57 is disgusting. Where is the growth in life? Where is the development? And Christ is our content. What I'm talking about is not a theology concerning Christ being our content, but of us being an entity composed of Christ as its content. How can the content of the church be Christ if the content of our individual being is not Christ? If we all live in the self, the flesh, and the natural life, and we come together, will we suddenly be an entity composed with Christ as the content? That's not possible. Then we will be forced into performance in the meetings. But if Christ is becoming our content little by little, day by day, then in fact, our church will be an entity composed of Christ as its content. Then the ground of the church is the genuine 
oneness. Not just any kind of oneness. But a genuine oneness. Then two says, to remain in the Lord's recovery, we must keep Christ as life and the oneness as our standing. To remain. When someone has been in the Lord's recovery for decades, especially if that person has been somewhat prominent in the ministry or in the work, and that person leaves, we should open to the Lord to learn something. How could that happen? And if it happened to him, then maybe it could happen to me. Do I think I'm invincible? That I'm invulnerable? Lord, how could that happen? Then the Lord may enlighten us. That person stopped growing in life. That person never grew in life to know the body as the organism of the triune God. If we are to remain here, there is a factor. It's not just our willpower. Certain things probably will happen under the assault of the enemy. Our natural will, our natural commitment will not prevail, will not avail. We need to keep Christ as life. Christ as life. Not as a doctrine. Please consider, yes, your human life. What you do in your human life, your driving, your working, your use of the computer, your primary relationships. Is Christ the life of all of that? Christ needs to be the life. This is not a slogan. Christ is our life. <clears throat> the table <clears throat> or the table declares Christ is our life. That is true. We all ate the fragment of the bread signifying our partaking of Christ as the bread of life which makes us the one bread. But life is not something an hour a week in the meeting. Life is all the time. The Lord's recovery is a recovery of Christ as life. And it's sad, it's almost, if it doesn't break my heart, it weighs upon my heart to see beloved brothers and sisters aging humanly in the church being faithful, dutiful members of the church, remaining in their natural life. Their, their love in their family life is no different from the love of unbelievers. Christ is not their life. Christ is not their love. 
So the Lord's recovery is an essential matter. It's a deep matter. It's an all-inclusive matter. It involves our being. For Christ to be our life means that Christ becomes us. Your life is you. For Christ to be your life, Christ is to be you. And we need to keep the oneness as our standing. Okay, F, there is a gap between the Lord's recovery and traditional Christianity because the recovery is wholly based on the pure word, whereas Christianity is filled with traditions. The great discrepancy between the recovery and Christianity includes three categories of things that are not scriptural, division, organization, and traditions. Some persons audaciously and recklessly in their blindness have accused the blending co-workers of establishing a worldwide organization. My response to that this morning is that such an accusation is a lie. I can't just call it false. It is a lie. There is no organization. But certain ones do not know the difference between fellowship and organization. We take the lead to condemn organizing the local churches, regionally or nationally or internationally. We keep the principle of one church in one city with one eldership. But every local church is an expression of the organic body of Christ, which has a unique fellowship. And if we are a genuine local church, we will keep ourselves in the fellowship of this organic body. Two, the history among us has been one of coming completely out of Christianity without compromise. Now my background was a seminary education. I understood the Lord's calling to be a minister I understood that in a natural and religious way until the Lord renewed my understanding. I went to a seminary and I had certain clerical items. You have a little pocket-sized communion kit that the pastor puts in a little bread and a little grape juice and then you visit the shut-ins and you have communion. Then you have your collar and your black shirt and you have your robe and you have other things. I had only been in the church for several weeks. I was in a, Monday, a Saturday morning prayer meeting. It started at 8. At 8.05, the Spirit thrust me out of the meeting to go to my apartment. Take down the cross. Take down the crucifix. Throw away the communion kit. Throw away all of these things. I came out completely 
out of Christianity. Some of my colleagues at Princeton Seminary were shocked. They wondered, was I sick? Was I mentally ill? Had I lost my mind? (laughs) No, I haven't lost my mind. I'm losing my soul life, but not my mind. (laughs) I'm coming out without compromise. That's our history. The history of the Lord's recovery is a history of coming out of and being outside of the present evil age. We need to be delivered from Christianity, the religious age in our time. We need to be delivered not only from the world, but actually Christianity is a part of the world. I hope you will have the grace not to be offended. But why should there be in a church building a cross over here and an American flag over there? This is from Constantine the Great. This is American Christianity. This is a mixture of patriotism, politics, and the faith. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we shouldn't honor our government. We do. I'm not saying we shouldn't love our country. We do. But there's someone in Florida famous for this. I've scanned his programs a number of times. His sermons are devoted to First Amendment matters and church state matters and the faith of our founding fathers, blah, blah, blah. Wanting America to be a Christian nation. One of my closest friends in seminary, if not the closest, we were dorm mates, we were floor mates, we were seeking the Lord together, we prayed together. But he has now devoted himself, his whole life, to the view that God's purpose is to raise up the United States as his testimony. He's the one who wrote the books from sea to shining sea and these other books. Not describing how the Lord was sovereign in raising up this country for his recovery. Rather taking the view America itself should be the testimony. This is darkness. This is not coming completely out. This is not being delivered from the present evil age. We do not need a Constantine at the head of state to legitimize our existence. Our brothers in the first few centuries died as martyrs. They would not offer the incense and say that Caesar is Lord, so they were put to death. We have separated ourselves from the religious mixture which is part of the present evil age. There should be no bridge between the local churches and Christianity. We should be what we are without compromise or pretense. So don't try to build a bridge. I have on my desk in my office a brochure 
I have the actual object. And it was promoting a young people's event sponsored in a certain part of North America. And it was being hosted by a certain church that we understand to be a local church. And I will not name that place out of respect for the brothers there. But they present themselves as a non-denominational evangelical church. That's the language of Ashdod. That's the language of Babylon. Non-denominational evangelical. That's religious speak. That's bridge building. Why not say this event is sponsored by the church in such and such locality? A local expression of the body of Christ in the Lord's recovery. Why not say that? Non-denominational evangelical church? That is not what we are. We're simply the. We're the. In the New Testament, there's no non-denominational evangelical. There's just the. Upon this rock, I will build my church. If you have a problem, you can't get through with one, you can't get through with two or three, tell it to the church. Don't try to build a bridge. Better to burn the bridges, blow up the bridges. Don't shed tears over them. Don't be a Lot's wife looking back wistfully. Don't boast of your background once you're in the church as if the denomination you left was the best. That's ridiculous. If it was so good, stay there. Build it up to the heavens. Spend your life on it. If it's not of God, leave it utterly and give yourself without compromise to the Lord's recovery. Five, we need to maintain the gap between us and Christianity. The wider the gap is, the better, because it is a gap between us and the present evil age. I I enjoy traveling in the UK. They have such dear directions, like if there's a step, there'll be a little sign saying, mind the step. And sometimes there's a space in between And they don't want you to fall in there. So there'll be a sign saying, mind the gap. I'd like to borrow that and apply it here. Brothers and sisters, mind the gap. There's a big gap. Now, we're about to go into section three. And certain things should become clear as we do. But I would like to anticipate the thought uh, right here. There is a gap, the wider the better, the deeper the better, between the Lord's recovery and Christianity. But there is no gap between us and other believers. There's no separation. There's no distance. We meet a dear sister, we meet a dear brother on our job. We rejoice, we have fellowship. We don't say, mind the gap. I've got to to mind the gap. This is not an issue of Christianity versus the Lord's recovery. You've met a dear believer. I spent some years 
In addition to my regular work to teaching at Northlake College in the English department part-time, I won't go into the details. I just wanted to do this. The Lord opened up a way to do that, and there was an opportunity to contact people and testify. And the faculty had some kind of gathering at the beginning of each semester, and that gathering began with a meal. So you, it's cafeteria style, you get your food, you sit down at the table. I was sitting at a table with some others. And then a woman I didn't know, she joined us. And then before she partook of her food, she bowed her head and was praying. And I appreciated that. And after she finished and lifted up her head and opened her eyes, I looked at her and I said, Amen. Right away, that opened a line of fellowship. No gap. Now, if she was in a denomination, I'm in the Lord's recovery, there's a gap between the Lord's recovery and her denomination, the gap between the organism and the system. But no gap between two fellow believers. You're unashamedly praying over your food. I respect this. I don't consider this religious. I respect this. And just the spirit in me would say, Amen. Right away, she opened up. We had pure fellowship there. The thought in this next section of the outline is separation without division. We are separated from the system but we are not divided from the believers. And I mentioned at the outset of this conference that we're in the genuine church, but not the perfect church and not the ideal church. And in this genuine, not perfect, not ideal church, some of the genuine but not perfect and not ideal saints have not been clear about this distinction. So they're kind of awkward meeting other believers. But there's no need to be awkward. They're children of God. They're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They're born of the Spirit. They have the life of God. The Lord is in them. We love them. We receive them. We're open not only to give, but to receive fellowship from them. And this is our consistent living. I'm not saying it's been perfect, but it is our consistent living. So we are not divided, but we must be separated from the religious organization. And the symbol in the Bible of this separation is the camp that means an organized arrangement of the tents of the Israelites. And the tent of meeting outside the camp. And I'd like to read to you from Exodus 33. We know what happened in Exodus 32. The setting up of the golden calf idol. 
And an altar was placed in front of the golden calf idol. And they sacrificed to it. Then the people ate and drank and rose up to play. They were having a jolly good time there. Very entertaining. They worshipped that idol, that golden calf, as if it were Jehovah. And the Lord told Moses, who was on the mountain with him, you need to go down. The people have turned astray. They're coming down. Joshua was with Moses, being his attendant, said it's a sound of war. Moses said no. It's the sound of music, the sound of dancing. And we know how Moses dealt with that situation. Now, this is what happens in chapter 33 as a result in verse 7. Now, Moses would take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Jehovah went out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. God and Moses, Moses with God, went outside the camp because the camp had become idolatrous. And Moses pitched his tent. This was his personal tent outside the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And verse 9, listen, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stay at the entrance of the tent, and Jehovah would speak with Moses. Verse 11, and Jehovah would speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his companion. The presence of the Lord, the speaking of the Lord, were outside the camp. In the tent. The camp signifies the degraded situation among God's people, the fallen religious situation, which the Lord has abandoned. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the end of chapter 23, if I remember correctly, the Lord indicated to them he would leave the temple. I leave it to you. You have your temple there. I leave. I am not there. Then we know from Hebrews 13, he went to die on the cross outside the gate of the city, outside the camp. Then Paul, in writing Hebrews, applies the picture afforded by the type in Exodus. Now the situation 
among the Hebrew believers in Jerusalem was this. They had received the gospel. They were saved. They were born of God. They had received the Spirit. They were meeting in the church and as the church. But they were suffering persecution. And also, they were separated from the religious celebrations held several times a year in the city. And some of the believers were wavering, wavering. Should we stay with the church? Or should we revert to Judaism? Then we won't be persecuted. Our families will be happy. We'll be home for Christmas. I'll be home for Christmas. If only in my dreams. And so Paul is writing a marvelous word which includes several warnings related to the kingdom. Don't drift away. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Stay in the church life. Then in chapter 13, he writes these verses in 12 and 13. Therefore also Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Let us therefore go forth unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And Paul is indicating Judaism as a religious system is the camp. The Lord suffered outside the gate, outside the city, outside the camp. And that is where the church is. It's outside the camp of Judaism. And that's where the Lord is, outside the camp. Let us go forth outside the camp. Now we're applying this principle to our situation. When the Lord established the church, it was a tent. Or you may say a temple. The principle is the same. It was the tabernacle, the real tent of meeting. The dwelling place of God, Paul tells the Corinthians. You're the temple of God. But through the degradation and corruption, the tent <clears throat> or the temple became a religious camp with lots of idolatry, as signified by Micah's house of gods, and much abomination signified by Jeroboam's apostasy. So what we are testifying is that just as Judaism had become a camp, Christianity has become a camp. Just as the Lord forsook Judaism, we must forsake Christianity as a system if we want the Lord. Because he is outside the camp. 
by leaving the Christianity camp and going forth unto the Lord, we are separating ourselves from the camp. But we are not dividing ourselves from the dear fellow believers who are still in the camp. We love them the same. We receive them. We fellowship with them. And we, by no means, are superior to them. We simply went outside the camp, obeying the Lord. We did what's required of us. We're not any better. Those in the camp may be more spiritual. Daniel in Babylon surely was more spiritual than many who returned to Jerusalem. The church life in the Lord's recovery is outside the camp. The camp is Christianity, and the tent is the church life in the Lord's recovery, being built up as the temple, the body of Christ, to prepare the bride. And we can't be in both. I have seen some who tried, who outwardly went outside the camp, objectively came into the church, but their being was a mixture of the camp and the tent. There is compromise there. They weren't clear about separating yourself without dividing yourself. And I call the heavens to witness, this is our living, this is our testimony. Anyone who comes to our Lord's table meeting, we receive you as a brother, we don't interrogate you, we don't say you're a companion of evil because you're part of the religious system. No. God has received you, Christ has received you, We receive you. What are we? We're the tent. This is the tent of meeting. This is the church of the living God. This is the Father's house. This is the local expression of the body of Christ outside the camp. This is what we are. You want to visit here? You're welcome. You want to come here and buy our books and read our magazines and then if you're a pastor, then follow the common way of stealing the material pass it off as your own, and not give any credit. I know how it works. I think you need to read Exodus 20 again. Thou shalt not steal. (laughs) And read Paul's word in Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no more. But some kind of sneak into the tent, and oh, wow, look at that recovery version and they buy the New Testament with the notes, then the next Lord's Day, they're giving sermons based upon the notes without even doing what worldly scholars would do, honoring your source. Because they won't risk the embarrassment of being associated with a Chinese man. Their racist heart. I say frankly, won't allow them to say, I learned this from a man from Chi Fu who did not have a theology degree. Anyway, you can come. 
You can steal the footnotes. You can quote affirmation and critique without proper citation. All that we have is for you. It's all for you, brothers and sisters. On the whole earth, it's all for you. If you want to handle it a certain way, then that's between you and the Lord. But our clear testimony is, we are not the camp. No matter what you call us, we're not the camp. We're a tent outside the camp. And here the Lord speaks to us face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, I think I can read through this portion of the outline and all the points should make some sense. The church is the tabernacle or temple of God. However, the church changed in nature from being a tent to a camp. The camp signifies a group of people, in particular a religious people, who are not faithful to the Lord. The Israelites were not faithful. They couldn't even last 40 days without Moses. You think they were Americans in their impatience. (laughs) This could be our downfall. This is a little footnote. Our downfall as a nation. No endurance. No patience for anything. So they said, Aaron, make us a god. And Aaron crafted the golden calf idol. Then when Moses came down, Aaron lied. He said, the people made me do it. I just threw the gold into the fire and out came a calf. (laughs) At that point, there was a change in nature. There are a lot of Jeroboams in Christianity and a lot of divisive centers of worship with golden calves and a priestly system and faux feasts, false feasts. Very common. Southern California is littered with them. So a transmutation has taken place And the tent became a camp. It happened in Judaism. It happened with Christianity. B, at this present time, Christianity is not a tent, but a camp. This means that the church degraded to become Christianity. In principle, Christianity as a religious system comprises a group of religious people belonging to the Lord in name and honoring the Lord with their mouth, but having their hearts set on something other than the Lord. That, that's the camp. Many of us were in a camp. We had camp meetings. This is Our indictment 
of Christianity as a religious system. Thankfully, we're in a country with the freedom of speech, the freedom to assemble, the freedom of press. Brothers in the past spoke such words with the cost of their life. They were burned at the stake. When religion and politics join, the enemy uses that combination to attack the church. And we are heirs of many who paid with their lives. John Huss was burned in Prague. Many were burned just for translating the Bible into the language of the people. So we thank the Lord that we have the freedom to speak the truth openly. So the persecution is not political. It'll be religious. Then so be it. We're not backing down and we're not watering down the word of the truth. See, according to the history of the church, those who really sought the Lord had to leave organized Christianity. That is, leave the camp and go forth to the Lord outside the camp. You read some of the testimonies of the brothers in the 19th century and in Great Britain and Ireland. They were disconstrained to make this pilgrimage. They loved the Lord, they sought the Lord, they loved His Word, and the more light they received, the more they were thrust out of the camp. Lords and ladies in that caste system, which is what it is, renounce their titles. Powerful testimony. Simply to be brothers and sisters gathered to the Lord's name and open to his word. And it can be no other way. I say again, in the ministry, we must state things plainly and without compromise. But in our contact with fellow believers, we do not make the church an issue. We don't say, where do you meet on the Lord's Day? They might say, what do you mean by the Lord's Day? Okay, where do you meet? And then they tell you, then don't tell them that's a camp. You've got to come out of the camp. Don't you know it's idolatrous? Balaam is there. Micah is there. Jeroboam is there. What golden calf did you worship yesterday? Don't do that. Please, don't do that. Don't make it an issue. If a seeking one wants to know your testimony, they want to know the truth, share it with them. According to John 10, the sheep in the fold, which corresponds to the camp, they know the shepherd's voice. They hear his voice, and he's the door for them outside the fold, into himself as the pasture. What is the difference between the Lord's recovery and Christianity? Christianity is the fold. 
The Lord's recovery is the flock. So in our hymnal, we change the line in that chorus of the gospel song. You know, it says he, the original says he brought me to the fold. No, he, the Lord never brought me to the fold. He brought me to the flock. And the fold is the religious system. In the flock, there is one shepherd and one flock. That's the Lord's recovery. And I hope you're clear that brothers such as I, we're not the one shepherd. We're, we're fellow sheep. That's why I excuse the pun. Here it comes again. That's why we really enjoy such sweet fellow sheep. We just have fellow sheep with the fellow sheep. I'm a sheep just like you. Maybe I'm older than most. It doesn't make me the shepherd. Christ is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He's the shepherd of our souls. He laid down his soul life for the flock. We're just fellow sheep. Outside the fold, with the flock, on the pasture. This may sound strange, but as I'm looking at you, I see a flock of lovely sheep lying down on the pasture eating Jesus, Amen. drinking the Spirit. Amen. A D, regarding the tent and the camp, we differentiate between separation and division. Moses and Joshua were not divided from the Lord's people, but they were separated from them. We must never cause a division among the children of God, but we must make a separation from the religious camp. We will not be divided from other believers in Christ, but Christianity has become a camp from which we must be separated. E, the tent and the camp are a clear picture of today's situation. All those who are seeking the Lord should go out of the camp and go forth unto him at the tent. Welcome to the tent. Amen. Someone asked you, what did you do over Labor Day weekend? You may say, I attended a tent meeting. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, was, there was this tent in Jacksonville, and I went to Jacksonville, and I just spent three, three nights in the tent with all the sheep outside the camp. Now let's take a break to sing a hymn that's in our booklet. I think it will be refreshing for us to stand and to sing hymn 549, Enter the Veil, and go without the camp. Then we'll have about 25 minutes of sharing on outline four, and you'll have lots of time to testify about how you love being in the tent. Okay, 549.
Amen. This, we may say, is the paradox of life in the Lord's recovery. On the one hand, in our spirit, with the Lord Jesus as our living way, we enter into the Holy of Holies to behold the glorious Christ. We live within the veil. The veil of the flesh has been broken. The cross has been applied to our being. Now our spirit flows, and in our flowing spirit, we live before the face of God in the Holy of Holies. At the same time, we are outside the camp, bearing the Lord's reproach. The writer of this hymn experienced this very deeply. He could say, earthly sorrows, sorely pain my heart. There was suffering there in the soul, but such delight and supply in the heavenly holy of holies. This is the Lord's recovery. It's not just outside the camp. It's within the veil. It's not simply within the veil. It's outside the camp. The more we are within the veil and outside the camp, the more we really know the Lord's recovery. Now we turn to consider three aspects of the Lord's recovery. And these three aspects are very much related to the four pillars that we considered in the first two messages. But they're not identical. And it's important to have this balanced view of the three aspects. The divine revelation, the God-man life, and the practice of the church life. Uh, some of us may be really interested in the divine revelation. We want to know all the truths, and this is commendable. But such persons may neglect the God-man life or may not properly participate in the church life. Some are so busy in the church life and they're given to the practicality of the church life but they're lacking in the divine revelation. And the God-man life just is a puzzle to them. They're basically natural. Some concentrate on spirituality, on being an overcomer, on living the God-man life, on living Christ as they understand it. But... They're spiritual, not governed by the divine revelation, and not part of the church life. Actually, the Lord's recovery is very balanced between truth, life, and the church, all of which are part of the gospel. Now we come to message four, the three aspects of the Lord's recovery, part one. The Divine Revelation in the Bible. Whether or not we are secure in the Lord's recovery and protected from division 
depends on the vision we have seen. So we're burdened for the saints, not only that they would be in the Lord's recovery, but to be secure in the Lord's recovery. Now, please don't proclaim lightly, I'm secure, I'm secure. How How do you know? You're that secure. What, what have you faced personally of a shaking nature? What kind of loss or blows have you sustained? What kind of attack have you undergone that you can just say so glibly, I'm secure, I'm secure. Don't trust yourself. Peter was really secure. Uh, All these wimps, they'll run away. I'm ready to follow you to prison, even to death. I'm a man, right? Well, it wasn't some big hulking Roman centurion that was used to expose Peter. But ordinary people, a little maid. Come on now, you're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. This was the third time. Peter didn't just say no this time, he's cursing. Cursing. And the Lord turns and looks at him. Then Peter doesn't trust himself anymore. So we need to be secure and we need to be protected from division by the vision we have seen. Now it's really good that you feel secure because certain brothers have seen the vision. Then you can say, Lord, I am secure and protected by the vision which these brothers have seen. And they're now more or less the umbrella today, so everything is landing on them. And I'm not just under the umbrella, I'm under them and I'm secure and I'm protected. And we're glad for that. It's an honor to protect you. But eventually, the vision has to be yours. It has to be your vision. It's not a hand-me-down revelation. You need to see it. It needs to be part of your being. It's in your spirit. It's in your heart. And it just keeps you from ever leaving, and it keeps you from division. Two, the revelation of God is the speaking of God, which has become the completed Bible. Uh, Religious cults have a number of characteristics, and one common characteristic is that they claim to have a revelation beyond or in addition to the scriptures. So the Mormons, who theologically really are a cult, have the Book of Mormon. And others have their prophets or their seers claiming to get revelation directly from God in addition to the Bible. We will never make such a claim. Uh, The divine revelation has been closed. It has been fixed. We cannot add to or take away from it. 
But we need a spirit of wisdom and revelation to see what is in the Bible. When we speak of revelation, we mean an unveiling to our spirit of what is there, but is hidden from our eyes, and we have not understood it. So by the revelation of God, which is a crucial aspect of the Lord's recovery, we mean the completed Bible. But come on, the Bible has to be expounded. Otherwise, it's all we can do is read the Bible or quote scriptures to each other. No one can give any testimony, any application. So there needs to be the ministry to open the word, to apply the word. But that ministry never replaces the word. And it, it opens the word and it ushers us into the word. But we cannot hold it equal to. But without the ministry, I say frankly, and you know, I don't think I'm, I'm dumb, but I say frankly, without the ministry, I don't understand much of what's really in Paul's epistles. You know, you leave it to me, I can understand Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know, I, I kind of have that kind of disposition that looks at the absurdity of human existence and pronounce it vain and it's all a joke and someone's playing a trick on us and et cetera, et cetera. You leave me in my deep self. But I come to Ephesians. That was part of how I got here. I was reading Ephesians in the Greek in August of 1966 and with the English translation. That was in chapter 3 talks about the multifarious wisdom of God being made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenlies through the church according to his eternal purpose. And I gasped. And then I prayed. I believe the Lord was interceding. So I prayed as a quotation of the Spirit's intercession. Lord, the man who can show me what this means, I will follow that man. Not as a person, but as a minister who knows the truth. So then several weeks later, my wife and I completed our trek from New York to California in faith because the Lord was leading us. I met a brother from the church in San Francisco who told me about the local churches and about a brother named Witness Lee. Gave me some literature. One was a message on the ground of the church. The other was the Stream magazine. The major article in that Stream magazine was entitled God's Purpose for the Church. The second section of that article was an exposition of those verses from Ephesians 3. So, I was true to my prayer. Then I will follow that man, not blindly, you don't follow anyone blindly. I don't follow him because I like Chinese people. For some reason, I've had a lot of contact with Chinese people over the years. I have a fondness for them. But there is no preference or bias. He has something I don't have from the Lord. And I follow him. In the spirit, but with an exercised mind.
I'll never forget, some of you heard this, my reaction the first time I saw him speak. I don't say heard, I say saw. It was in the late winter of 1967, and our brother was speaking in Eldon Hall, and as I was watching him, two words kept going through my being with a sense of amazement. No self. And immediately there was a respect for his life with the Lord. Because in my whole background, preaching was the best time to exhibit and exalt the self. Here is a man, no self. So, surely, I made a decision, a prudent decision, to follow the minister of the age and the ministry of the age, but not blindly. Not as if he's some infallible person who gets extra biblical revelation from the Lord, but someone with the genuine function in the ministry to open the word. So, this is what we mean by the revelation. Now, the next section, which is almost the whole outline, is a summary of the central contents of the Lord's recovery with respect to revelation. These all require much study, much pursuing, many messages. I'll mainly read, just to give you some impression then you'll have maybe up to 25 minutes to respond. So just hang in there for another 10 or 12. If you can't do it, have a most blessed nap, okay? <laughs> just have a blessed nap. If you, if you just can't hold on anymore, then the, just nap in peace under blessing, under my blessing. I bless your eyelids. I'll just assume that you're praying there. Okay. Okay. The divine revelation in the Bible is the content of the Lord's recovery. So we don't want to be empty in the Lord's recovery. We want content. A, the revelation concerning the eternal economy of God. God's economy is his household administration which is to dispense himself in Christ into his chosen and redeemed people that he may have a house to express himself, which house is the church, the body of Christ. Oh, the divine dispensing is a central matter regarding the content of the recovery. God's economy is that God became man so that man may become God in life and nature, but not in the Godhead to produce the organism of the triune God, the body of Christ, which consummates the new Jerusalem. We're not becoming God in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. Just to be God in life and nature, but not in the Godhead, the Lord is making us the same as he is in life and nature so that he may have the body of Christ built up. 
Three, God's economy is carried out by God's dispensing, the imparting of himself to us according to his plan and arrangement. So what do you mean by God's dispensing? I'll show you that this is the triune God, full of life. I'm a vessel to contain the life. Here comes the dispensing. It's so simple. Now the God that was in himself is now the God that is in me. This is dispensing. Have you eaten Jesus today? If you did, say amen. If you didn't, don't lie. You got the afternoon, you got the evening to come to the word of God as the bread of life and receive some dispensing. Call on the Lord and drink the spirit. Get God added to your being. KB, the revelation concerning the divine trinity. We pay much attention to this. God is uniquely one. Yet he is triune, three, one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he's not the Father, the Son, and the Spirit consecutively. First he's the Father, then he stops being the Father, then he's the Son for a while, and then the Son ceases to be, and God takes the form of the Spirit. That's a heretical teaching. We do not embrace that. The three of the divine trinity coexist, and co-inhere eternally. But we'll see in the process of God's economy, the Father plans something, the Son accomplishes what the Father planned, the Spirit dispenses what the Son accomplished. There's a kind of sequence there. But it doesn't imply that the three are not eternal in the Godhead. Three, the essential trinity refers to the essence of the triune God for his existence. Whereas the economical trinity refers to the plan of the triune God for his move. And we emphasize the economical trinity because the Bible does. The Bible does not emphasize abstract speculation on the essence of God. For Paul, the Lord was the Spirit. He didn't engage on speculation on the relationships in the Godhead. He believed in the Father, Son, and Spirit. All God, all eternal, all existing at the same time, all co-inhering. But his point of reference was the actual experience of the divine dispensing. So he prays in the light of this in Ephesians 3. He prays to the, that the Father of glory would strengthen us with power through his spirit into the inner man so that Christ may make his home in our hearts. This is the triune God, not in theory, but in operation. The divine trinity is for the divine dispensing. The Father as the origin is the fountain. Amen. The Son is the expression, is the spring. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. The Spirit as the transmission is the flow. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Do you realize you've got a fountain in you? Amen. Huh? You've got a spring. Amen. Is the fountain springing up? Amen. Overflowing? Amen. Streaming out? Amen. That's the divine trinity as the origin, the expression, and the transmission. 
This is our God. C, the revelation concerning the person and work of the all-inclusive Christ. To say that Christ is all-inclusive means that he is the complete God, the perfect man, and the reality of every positive thing in the universe. So actually, the real chair is not the chair that you're sitting on. The real chair is Christ. Uh, I have glasses. As some of you have heard, I have trifocals, an obvious symbol of the triune God, right? (laughs) So I wear this symbol all the time because the all-inclusive Christ is my vision, my seeing capacity. I'm clothed with him, just as you are. Okay, one, the all-inclusive Christ as the preeminent one and the one who fills all in all is the centrality and universality of God's economy. Christ is everything to the believers for their enjoyment, and he is everything to the church. So we need to have the subjective experience of Christ as the center of God's economy. Hymn 537 in the English says, So subjective is my Christ to me, real in me and rich and sweet. So if you really know the Lord's recovery, you will know that the content of the Lord's recovery is the all-inclusive Christ becoming your subjective experience. Right now, he's making his home in your heart. When you put your bed on your pillow tonight, you'll have more of Christ in your heart than when you got up this morning. Because he's doing a building work all day in your being. Wonderful, huh? Amen. D, the revelation concerning the consummated life-giving spirit. The spirit of God has been compounded with a number of other elements to become a compound spirit typified by the anointing ointment. Don't you sense that this conference is under the anointing of the Spirit? Even now there's an anointing upon the tent of meeting. The Spirit's flowing. Oh, I love it. Don't you love it? To be under the moving of the Spirit. In his resurrection, Christ, the last Adam in the flesh, became a life-giving Spirit. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. According to Luke 24, he had flesh and bones. But the Bible clearly says that Christ is in us. We do not have the feeling that a being with flesh and bones is in us. Yet the Bible says Christ is in us. He's even making his home in his, our heart. How is that possible? It's possible because he is the life-giving spirit. So the resurrected Christ, does he have a body of flesh and bones or is he the life-giving spirit? The answer obviously is yes. He's on the throne, low in heaven, Jesus sitting. He's there, he will come from there. But Christ is in us as the hope of glory. How can this be? How can he be in the heavens with a body of flesh and bones? How can he be in me as the spirit? I don't know. But I'm just enjoying the fact. He's there and he's here. Amen. Amen. The revelation concerning the eternal life of God. The eternal life is the uncreated, indestructible, 
and incorruptible life of God. Do you realize you've got something in you that's eternal and indestructible? And this part of you will never die? Even if your physical body has to go into death, actually, you will never die. You have the life of God in you, and that life will be resurrection life, and it will conquer death in every form and raise you up. And you're just going to live eternally in the organism of the triune God because you have the life of God that is gradually filling your whole being. This is the Lord's recovery. The eternal life as a blessing from God to us is in three stages, which are in three ages, the present age for all the believers, the kingdom age for the overcomers, and the eternal age for all the believers. The revelation concerning the body of Christ, which is the church of God. The church is the organic body of Christ, which is organically united with him to be his expression. The body of Christ is a divine and human constitution constituted with the regenerated and transformed believers as its outward visible frame and the processed and consummated triune God as its inward invisible content. So the outward part everyone can see. You know, and just look at us physically. We're, we're not that glamorous. We're not that glorious. Okay, we're just ordinary people. But we are the frame, and we contain the triune God who is mingling himself with us and constituting himself into us to produce an organism. And that constitution of the triune God with redeemed, transformed humanity, is the body of Christ. If you're looking for the body of Christ, you're looking for this. But this body of Christ is the content of the local churches in the Lord's recovery. So in your spirit, you have to see beyond this motley crew of persons assembling in the Hyatt Hotel in Jacksonville. You have to look beyond all of this and realize something divine and mystical is taking place in the center of our being and mingling himself with us, that is the body of Christ. You want to know where I am right now? Actually, I'm not in this auditorium. I'm not in this hotel. I'm not in Jacksonville. I'm not in Florida. I'm not in the USA. I'm not in North America. I'm not on the earth. I'm with you in the body of Christ. Marvelous organism to be a part of this. The oneness of the body of Christ is according to the Lord's aspiration expressed in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 6 through 24. The Lord prayed for this threefold oneness. He died to destroy all division and to create one new man. In resurrection, he breathed himself as the Spirit into the disciples. And by receiving the Spirit, they received the oneness of the Spirit, which is the Spirit himself. And that oneness became the oneness of the body, which they applied, and it became the one accord. And upon this oneness, the commanded blessing of life came. So here we are in the oneness of the body of Christ, enjoying 
the contents and the substance of the Lord's recovery, isn't it a privilege, a blessing, and a mercy? Praise the Lord, we're outside the camp, becoming a constitution, a vessel to contain this tremendous, unfathomably deep, and unsearchably rich content. This is a crucial aspect of the Lord's recovery. I think it's good to pray again, as we have. While we're praying, the dear brothers will bring in the mics, and then please come forward to give 30-second responses. Wherever you are in the meeting, follow the Spirit to speak for Him. Amen.